Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. We're digging into the digital revolution, which is all around us these days, personally, professionally, everywhere in between, and changing pretty much every facet of our lives. As uh, we move into the summertime of 2021, we are delighted to have our good friend and monthly guest, Sean Amirati. Sean is a venture capitalist. He's a professor in the business school at Carnegie Mellon. He's an author. He is a podcaster. He's a serial entrepreneur and he's a triathlete. Sean, welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, actually, uh, John Foley was was here in Florida about a month ago. We got a chance to do a run and a swim together. So I think the question is how many of the different Cloud Wars folks are triathletes? Because maybe there's a, a different sponsorship opportunity for one of your tech companies here. Uh, so like the middle of the pack uh, triathlete sponsorship. Well, Sean, is that Under Armour? I see. Yeah, sure. But I'll, but any I'll, anybody would be fine. Anybody <laughs> right. would be fine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and this is not a reflection on John. John was, is an incredible athlete. But uh, I can assure if anybody wants to sponsor the Cloud Wars All-Star Team, I can assure for myself at least, we will definitely not finish in the top quarter. Like, I, you know, so if that's what you're looking for, IBM, SAP, whomever, like we're good, like we're middle of the pack. The SAP is actually sponsoring um one of the world's best triathletes recently doing like a bunch of data analysis around. so that it, we could kind of compare jan Ferdano versus you know very average middle-aged athlete kind of thing so it could be it could be really interesting and those those triathletes are people too they deserve right. their, their their sponsorship that's absolutely right. no sean that sounds great um <clears throat> so sean you have compiled or, or or noted and pulled together some really interesting numbers and if i could just take a second to Set a little of the context here, right? Uh, one of the things that you know with Cloud was clearly focus on the these ten you know mega brands in the in the tech business and you know just the astonishing gravity and power that they have there. I, I think the combined market cap of the Cloud was top ten is five and a half, close to six trillion dollars. So the emphasis sometimes can be just on these big giant companies, but there's so much going on. You know, like with the mid-market triathletes and <laughs> mid-market tech companies, but also you've really got your eye from some of the work you do at Carnegie Mellon and also as a venture capitalist on some of these smaller companies. And there might be a need for a little more focus and energy on them, right? Yeah, so I, I, think, I, I think it's been incredible what you've documented with Cloud Wars, right? And we've had a bunch of great discussions about a lot of the companies in the top 10, and it's been fun to watch some of these newer companies break into the to the list um, like a snowflake. But what I would say is, that I think for your audience, what you're seeing is you're seeing more and more companies stay private longer and become actually really valuable private companies. And so my what I wanted to just take a moment today is talk a little bit about that part of the market. And, and really, the goal here is hopefully to encourage some of the people who are listening to just maybe broaden their, their litmus test of who they're thinking about for some of these partnerships beyond just those top 10. You know, is there a, another five or 10 rising stars that you should consider including? And I'm not talking about necessarily the three-person startup, although I think there's a different role for that in corporate innovation. But I'm talking about these companies that are valued at over a billion dollars or what are often called unicorns, you know, a privately held company that's worth over a billion dollars in the, their most recent financing event. 
Sean, why are these companies, as you said, they're choosing to remain private for a longer period of time? I mean, it, it, in some ways, perhaps the answer is obvious, but I suspect there's some more sophisticated thinking behind that. Well, there, there's a lot here, right? So part of it is that there's a lot of people who used to only be able to access their capital in the public markets that are making private investments now. So you have, you know, your fidelities and your your larger companies. Your, your larger retail investment groups that are now making investments in these companies private. Part of it is, is that uh, companies are um, able to, to put these rounds together and achieve a lot of the things that you used to only be able to achieve by being a publicly traded company, you know, liquidity for early employees, liquidity for founders, that kind of thing in these private investments. And, and you know, <clears throat> there's also, I think a, a lot of just desire to be able to have a longer term horizon than you might as a publicly traded company. Now, ultimately, I think all these companies benefit from going public at some point. There's there's governance benefits around that. There's just transparency around financial statements that companies benefit from that. But you are having these companies stay private longer and longer. And, and this term unicorn was coined, I think, about 10 years ago because the idea was for a certain size venture firm, you needed to raise money at at least a billion dollar valuation from one company in your portfolio to make that portfolio be a top performing venture portfolio. And so, and at the time that was a relatively rare thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But over the last 10 years, that's become more and more common. And and CB Insights, which is this kind of analyst group that covers a lot of stuff in the innovation ecosystem, has been cataloging and keeping track of the number of companies worth over a billion dollars for a number of years now. And they just came out with their data for the first five months of 2021. And what they said is there are now 701 total companies worth over a billion dollars. But the more interesting thing to me was that in the first five months of 2021, there were 187 companies that for the first time raise money at over a billion dollar valuation, right? So of the 701 total, 187 of them are new for the last five months. And also interestingly, is when you think about like that rapid, because some of this is also companies are going public and falling off that list. But if you think about like, well, a, a net addition of 187, put that in context. To put that in context, I look back from 2014 to 2018, so for across that five-year period, there were 175 companies net new added. So you're talking about five months having as many new unicorns as five years from 2014 to 2018. It just shows really this explosion of these companies that are becoming incredibly valuable in the private markets. And so if I'm sitting at a healthcare company or a pharmaceutical company, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, what's the right technology companies to partner with. Obviously, some of the right answers are SAP, Microsoft, Oracle, VMC, all of those, all of those companies. But another part of the list might be some of these so-called unicorns that are mature companies, but, you know, just rapidly growing, still privately held companies. And I just, I think my encouragement today is for a lot of those groups, can you just broaden your horizon a little bit and think about expanding the number of companies that you're inviting into that process? Because I think you're you're really under leveraging this growth through partnership by just keeping it to the to the top kind of you know decile of those companies. So Sean, 
just want to be sure I captured that right. 2014 to 2018, a five-year period inclusive of both. There were almost uh, 700 of these uh, new $1 billion valuations there, over that five-year period. Uh, over that five-year period, there were 175 sure. new companies. Today, there's 701 total companies worth over a billion dollars that are still privately held. So that five-year period, uh, it was 175 in a five-year period. So right. far in 2021 in a five-month period, there's been 187. It's so almost a 10% increase in five months versus five years. So um, Sean, I want to ask you about some of the, um, you know, the, the sorts of work these companies are doing in just a second. But first, I just want to offer a word from our sponsor, BMC. BMC wants to know, is your business on its A game? That's when systems are intelligent by learning from markets, where automation is paramount yet effortless, and when technology and people work as one in an enterprise. The A game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at bmc.com slash A game. So Sean, uh, clearly I would guess all of these uh, 187 unicorn companies that have hit a billion dollar valuation just in the first five months of this year have something to do with technology but can you uh you know within that uh sort of silly overarching umbrella what are they doing and is there are there some threads that uh, or trends that you would point to that uh that typifies you know this this extraordinary boom and what's going on here yeah, absolutely. So you see, you see up, you know, you see it across the kind of high growth areas of tech, right? So you've got general purpose AI machine learning, you've got kind of tech infrastructure, you've got uh, companies that are reinventing industries. Actually, one of those 187 is a company that we were really lucky at Birchmere to be one of the first investors in, I think actually the first investor in called the Zebra. And what the Zebra does, if you, you may have seen their TV commercials, but they're basically like kayak for car insurance, right? So reinventing how people shop for car insurance. Um, so it really, you know, and then you've got kind of more classic e-com and, and logistics and businesses like that. Um, another interesting thing is just how global this list is, right? I think I, I, I may have this number, if not exactly correct, it's at least direction collect. I believe there are about 30 of them that were uh, European startups on that list in the last 187 uh, that were added there, right? So you, you're seeing, you know, innovation and technology, not just be a, a US dynamic, but a, a global perspective. Actually, the most valuable privately held company right now, according to CB Insights again, is ByteDance, which is obviously based in China, right? Uh, the $140 billion valuation. Um, but then, you know, think about if the, you know, the, the second most valuable one is Stripe, right? That's a, a fintech company based in, in the West Coast that helps automate payments, right? So it's, it's, really, it's, it's really kind of all things tech and, and technology. I think there's plenty of them that are in the um, that are in the kind of AI machine learning enterprise tech space, which is areas that I think we've been talking about a lot here. I've also seen a ton in the data storage space, right? We talked, I think the last time I was on here about how uh, people were using the wrong analogies to estimate the size of the data storage market. I think you could make the same argument uh, around 
you know, payments and payment infrastructure, right? Early on, how big was API for credit card payments? Well, it was a, it was a small market, but how big was the, the payments network and the payments infrastructure? It was a, a massive market, right? And, and Stripe's obviously built that market and improved it over the last um, couple of years. I think the largest, uh, to my knowledge, I think the largest kind of B2B enterprise tech in the data storage space would be Databricks, which I know John's talked about a bit. I think that's a $28 billion valuation as of their last, their last round. So, so Sean, and uh, you had noted early on that business people looking to accelerate innovation, explore, you know, new levers to pull for this type of innovation can take a look at these and that these are not just, you know, tiny little three, four, five person startups, but they've reached a billion dollar valuation. Can you give Sean a broad idea of how big are these companies, right? How many employees are the, you know, generally what the revenue range is? Uh, so all over the map, right? So I'm just, I'm just looking at the top 10 here. So, you know, the top 10 include, you know, companies like SpaceX with relatively uh, modest revenue to companies like uh, Epic Games that has been in the news a lot recently with the, the Apple uh, litigation there that, that, I mean, that's a real business in, in every sense of the word, right? And so um, I think you, you have the sort of, the, the sort of spectrum there. Um, to me, like the, the point is, if you're raising at these types of valuations, right? Stability is not the issue, right? Like there's there's capital and there's there's capital behind these companies that give the same amount of runway you could expect from any of the other kinds of companies that you're that you're talking about, but probably a little more agile, a little more uh, flexible, and and still looking for those kind of marquee customers that that will often make the make the business and and so there's, I think real opportunity to co-create value here in the way that you've seen, and I'm not saying that the big guys don't do that. My point is not stop doing that with people like Microsoft, who I think is an expert in this. My point is do that with Microsoft and Databricks, right? This is not a either or, this is a yes and kind of opportunity. Yeah. As you said, you know, uh, open up the aperture there a little bit and, you know, uh, be more open to this. Sean, Anna, it, it's not within the group you're talking about, but I'm still been, you know, very intrigued by Microsoft's announcement is only about six weeks ago, I think of their intention to acquire Nuance for really yeah. $20 billion. And Nuance's annual revenue, I think is in the range of about 1.3 billion. Yeah. Um, and they're not growing. So, but clearly they've got some extraordinary technology and Sachin Nadella has designated healthcare. He said it is the most important vertical market or it's the most important industry. And he said, AI is the most important and transformative tool. So he feels that what uh, this remarkable AI technology that Nuance has can be applied in healthcare. And he said, and we believe it will have applications in other industries as well. So even if I think uh, among these unicorns, on the list that you've highlighted here, even if they might be slightly outside where some big companies today are looking, there could be ideas, uh, innovations, applications, and different possibilities that could come from it. So I think you've raised a great idea here that this is not just a new place to go look necessarily just to buy stuff that'll be a little better, cheaper, but this is a place to go look for new ways of thinking and new approaches to what you, know, you have rightly called for a while, reimagination. 
Yeah. Well, I think the nuance thing is a great example. So to me, nuance for what it's worth is a lot like what we predicted would happen with Slack once they showed up inside Salesforce, right? Like the, the, the nuance technology, not only does it have a lot of the, the AI machine learning kind of sizzle there, but, but voice tech is, I think, finally having its moment. You know, Bob, you and I were uh, friends with some teams at Carnegie Mellon, man, 20 years ago that were doing, you know, voice tech startups. And, and it was just always like right around the corner, but it just, it also never really felt like the, the speech never felt natural on either side, right? The, the text to speech that was coming back to you was obvious it was the computer, not, not a human speaking to you. And the ability to sort of speak into the, for voice input was just never as natural as it could be. And so companies like Nuance, you know, you got to give them credit. They just, they hung around, they kept battling. They've come up with a bunch of really interesting technologies for this. But I think we're now at a point where, you know, voice tech is going to be this really interesting uh, area that explodes, not just on the consumer side, but on the B2B side as well. Right. So, uh, you know, I could say, hey, I won't do it because it will mess up this recording. But I could say, hey, and everybody knows the, the second person that I would say there. Right. And I just expect to be able to interact with my Apple devices that way. Right. And that's on a B2C side. I think what you're going to see is over the next you know, 12 to 18 months when nuance lands inside a place like Microsoft. And all of a sudden you have the sales, the partnership, the marketing muscle that a company like Microsoft can provide against that incredible enabling technology. You're going to see it integrated into lots of experiences in healthcare and finance. Really think about anything where you're interacting today with a painful call center interaction. If you could replace that with nuanced technology and the, the right kind of AI machine learning models behind that, you know, it, we may get to a point 12 months from now where we're not quite sure, am I talking to an actual representative or am I talking to, you know, a Microsoft nuance enabled uh, kind of avatar like interaction back and forth. And Sean, I, I know that again, this is a list compiled by CBN sites, not by you, but do you have a, a, a broad sense as you, you study a lot of these companies, you look at them, you're aware of, you know, these types of, of high growth companies, you've helped to nurture some of them. Uh, how would you evaluate the, the top level leadership at some of these companies, right? Is that, are they, are they ready to move into bigger companies or are these companies now, one of the things about the leadership that, uh, you know, we can infer from the fact that they've, remain private longer is they're doing exactly what they want to do and they're taking control of their own destiny here. Yeah. So I think that there's a, an assort, you know, that's not an evenly distributed answer, right? So uh, for example, the, just to talk about the one I know the best, cause it's our portfolio company, like Keith, who is this, who's the CEO at the zebra was the president at kayak when kayak went public through Kayak's acquisition, right? So took it public, was public for about just about six months and then actually right before their second earnings announcement that they uh, announced that they're being acquired there. So he was president through that whole journey and then and then even post acquisition there. And I, I think, you know, he'll do it when the time is right. I don't sense he's in any rush to do it, but you know, if he, he certainly has all the, the credibility and, and sort of leadership skills that that he could take a company public t tomorrow, no problem. 
um, there definitely are companies on here that um, I think there are there are leadership gaps on this list that are there are leadership gaps that need filled up. The thing that's more concerning to me is um, I think there's a, a lot of reflection we as an industry need to do on the right way to to create healthy corporate governance among among these companies. And, and by the way, this is not just true for these private companies. I think. Uh, it would be good for us all to do some healthy thinking about good corporate governance for uh, some of these public companies as well. Tesla, I mean, just, you know, anybody, I guess, but uh, that might be a good example, for example. Um, you know, we, there people, I think, underappreciate that good boards, like high-functioning good boards, help both the company the leadership team and everybody involved in the organization, right? Not just the shareholders, but all of the stakeholders. And, and the thing that's a little concerning to me is when you say statements like that, sometimes people come back and point out like, well, yeah, but you know, this board was really bad and, and that was a really bad experience. So I'm, I'm going to just control my company at this point. Well, I don't, I don't want us to be making decisions on the left tail worst outcome, right? If, if, if corporate governance, you know, it is plotted on a bell curve and, you know, most are in the middle and some are amazing and, and some are terrible, let's not make decisions based on just that left tail terrible part of it, right? And this is not even just the boards themselves, but it's uh, different classes of shareholders and, and sort of the implications around, there's, there's a lot here that I think we all need to we all need to take a, a breath and, and think about. Um, and it's some of it is predates technology, right? I mean, Bob, you've been in the media business for a long time. There's there's a lot of media families that have used these instruments for a long time as well. Um, but I think, you know, technology is at a point where it's touching our lives and impacting humanity in such meaningful ways. These are companies that we really need to think about, not how do we just make them okay, but how do we make them great in every sense of the word? And I think there are examples of this. Um, you know, I don't have any inside knowledge other than than what I've read, and I've probably read the same thing most of this. The audience has read around Microsoft Board's handling of the Bill Gates stuff, and it's, it's hard to know what's true and what's not there. But I will say this: it sounds like a high-functioning, well-run board. Like, you know, and it may or may not be, I'm sure only a fraction of what is coming out in the press is true. That's not the point. The point is it's a high functioning, well-run board. And I think more tech companies would be well-served by high functioning, well-run boards. Tesla, Facebook would be too easy to pick on examples right now, but I think it's a much more ubiquitous problem than just those couple companies. Yeah, John, that fascinating. Um, before you go, I wanted to ask you one thing. Here, there's uh, two executives in new positions in the tech industry at big companies. And you know, you're a, a student of leadership and culture and performance and what you're just talking about governance in some ways. So <clears throat> on Salesforce's earnings call last week, Mark Benioff, you know, who can really go overboard sometimes with the superlatives, he said awesome 11 times in his opening statement, but he, heaped as much praise on their new CFO, Amy Weaver, as I've ever heard Mark Benioff heap on anybody. He said she's turned the company upside down. It's been remarkable. Up until, 
I think six months ago, she was the chief legal officer, but she's moved down to the CFO role and apparently done some extraordinary things there. And then uh, earlier this year, a woman who had been, uh, had a great career at Microsoft, she had been in charge of Azure marketing in her last position, Julia White, moved over to SAP and she took on what in uh, what I think is a new title, not just at SAP, but anywhere, Chief Marketing and Solutions Officer. Hmm. And I think my guess is that with Julia, they'd offer their position of CMO. And she said, no, nope, not good enough because I can be CMO, but if you don't put the right solutions together, all the marketing in the world isn't going to help that. So she did, uh, she was a co-star with Christian Klein in the Sapphire keynote yesterday. And Sean, she was extraordinary. I mean, there was a voice and an energy and a passion and the language that she used in her keynote about what SAP is able to do now was totally unlike anything that I've ever heard from SAP. So uh, this infusion of fresh ideas, fresh voices, fresh outlooks, and energy and vitality, even big company to big company, it's still there. And I think that's a thing that leadership has to continue to pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think actually those two, so those two roles, I think are, are two great roles to talk about kind of just reimagining what does it mean in those disciplines, right? So I am convinced finances basically systematically underinvesting in innovation as a rule of thumb based on the models that they're using to do it, right? And I think it's time for CFOs to stop worrying about just doing the logistics correct and start thinking about themselves as asset allocators and drivers of innovation based on how they allocate those assets, right? And and then on the on the marketing side, right? Look, we we are no longer at a point where, you know, the right round of golf and, and the right Super Bowl experience is going to win you an enterprise um, contract, right? You, you need to have the right solution, right? And I think um, that's an incredible recognition of sort of how they've shaped her title to say like, okay, we want you to be much more than just someone who figures out, you know, the right ad placement, the right branding and the right market experiences. Let's go actually help figure out the, what our customers want and then actually deliver it to them, which truthfully is actually a much more accurate definition of marketing, but somehow we've just seemed to have gotten away from it in, in some of these categories over the last few years. Very true, Sean, great thoughts on that. Thanks for the follow-up. Thanks for the insights on these unicorn companies and overall what's gone on here. Remember, this is the guy, Sean Amorati predicted that Slack would be acquired by Salesforce or Oracle, and also that uh, Snowflake would move into the Cloud Wars top 10, which it has done. So he sees the future, Sean Amrod. Th Sean, thanks for being with us. Always fun talking with you. Thank you, Bob. Thanks to all of you folks for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live. Hope summer's off to a great start for you and your families. Look forward to seeing you next time.